0: This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is entrepreneur Brad Hargraves, the founder of co-living company Common. Co-living is a relatively new phenomenon, sometimes oversimplified as dorms for grown-ups. But there's a lot more to it than that. And in our discussion, Brad explains the demographic changes and economic forces that have created a market for shared housing at any age. I originally spoke with Brad way back at the beginning of March, before the coronavirus turned life upside down here in the States. In the first half of the episode, we discussed the similarities between education and real estate, why developers are getting tired of luxury housing, and how interior design plays a crucial role getting common tenants to renew their leases. Later on in the show, you'll hear me check in with Brad more recently to hear how COVID has affected his business and how it might disrupt commercial real estate in unexpected ways. This podcast is sponsored by Buildlane. Buildlane believes that designing and sourcing custom furniture should be easy and enjoyable. Their platform, developed specifically for interior designers, is making it so. Simply upload your design to your online designer dashboard and go live with the builders making your furniture. From RFQ to shop drawings to detailed finished photos, you'll gain full transparency into the process, meaning you'll always know at which step your project is in and the day it's going to be completed by. Furniture quality is designer grade. Lead times are 6 to 8 weeks. Pricing is competitive. Shop drawings are free. All 100% made in the USA. Discover why interior designers across the country have been using Buildlane since 2017 by creating your free designer account at buildlane.com boh and receive $250 off your first order. That's buildlane.com boh. This podcast is also sponsored by the Urban Electric Company. From its founding in 2003, the Urban Electric Company has grown from a small lantern studio to become one of the most recognized lighting companies in the global design industry, as well as an important contributor to the successful return of American manufacturing. The key to their enduring success? A commitment to cutting-edge innovation, heirloom quality craftsmanship, and uncompromising client service. From materials and scale to engineering and finishing, to endlessly versatile and unparalleled customization capabilities. Each of Urban Electric's 300-plus bench-made fixtures is made to order, designed to inspire, and built to last. Go to urbanelectric.com to explore the collection and customization capabilities to bring your unique vision to life. And now, on with the show. You were one of the early founders of General Assembly. Tell, tell listeners who might not be familiar what, what General Assembly... Is
1: yeah, totally. So, so a few friends and I started uh this company back really coming out of the last downturn in 2010, and we started it with the goal of democratizing access to technology. For someone in, t- in the tech industry today, uh, they they may not know or may not recall, but there really weren't easy pass into the tech industry back then. Getting in front of investors was hard. Pretty much the only way to get a job at a tech startup is either you'd been coding your whole life, you went to one of a handful of computer science schools, or you knew somebody. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the last recession, that seemed crazy. Because you had all of these companies that needed to hire digital marketers, they needed to hire coders, they needed to hire designers. And on the flip side, you had all of these smart, talented people who just didn't have quite the right skills to get these jobs. So we started General Assembly to really be that bridge. In three months, we could take a smart, motivated person and teach them enough about front-end web development or digital marketing or uh, UX design to get them a junior-level job in those skill sets. It's a very impressive
0: organization. I should say that my son, Stephen, actually took a UX class at General Assembly. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And he, he came to me very sweetly one day and asked if he could borrow the money to take this class <laughs> that he had been wanting to do. And I said, let's make that happen. Absolutely. And it was it was a rigorous course. I mean, it, it it's not fluff at, at, at General Assembly. So- you sold the company, and what were you doing sort of after after that?
1: Yeah, so I, I started started Common a, a few years before we sold, actually. Right. And, you know, really started, and, and a lot of people look at me and they say, well, wow, education or real estate, it's so different. And in some respects, it is. And I can talk about how it is different beyond the obvious reasons. But in other respects, it's not. So if you think about both education and residential real estate, not within the respective industries and within the respective silos, but as consumer products, they're actually pretty similar. They are certainly between the ages of 18 and 35, the number one and number two things that we spend money on. They are transformative products Mm. in that where you live and where you go to school can totally change your life. They're products that are very considered decisions that you don't just generally show up on the internet and make a few clicks and pull out your credit card and rent an apartment or sign up for a three-month course. So they, they actually have a lot of similar dynamics. Brand is important, but they're also sectors where you haven't historically seen robust consumer brands, particularly at the mass market middle level of the market. So look at education, for instance. You know, you have a handful of great education brands that everyone knows about, Mm. but you can't really name many brands of, you know, vocational or trade education. Same with residential real estate. You know, maybe people are familiar with Related or Avalon Bay or Trump, but there really aren't many residential brands that speak to the average person making $60,000 a year moving to the city for the first time. So- Both companies were really creating brands that spoke to a large number of people trying to figure out a decision, trying to make a purchase in one of these incredibly weighty areas. Mm. And weighty areas that haven't historically had great track records of consumer experience in the middle section of the market. Right. So
0: before we get too deep into what what brought you to, to Common and, and what sort of the ideas were that were bubbling up around this, as you say, several years before you actually left General Assembly. Explain for us sort of briefly so that listeners get an idea of, of what Common actually is
1: and, and, and what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> we, we started this company in 2015 really with the, the, the goal, the overarching goal of making the experience of renting an apartment in a city better. And not just better for a handful of people, but better for the average person moving to a city for a new job. And there's a lot of different ways you can solve that. But we had a few hypotheses early on. One of those is that if you wanted to solve it, you couldn't just build another app or another service. You had to really go into the guts of it and redesign from the ground up. The second thesis was that you would be better suited by tailoring the product to a specific audience, a specific need, mm. specific underserved need. And the underserved need that we started with was pe- were people who live with roommates. 25 million Americans share a home or apartment with someone they're not related to. And that number has actually grown by 20% over the last 10 years, which makes it one of the fastest growing segments of residential in America. There are a lot of reasons for that, that I can get into some obvious, mm. such as the affordability crisis in America, some less obvious. So some people, you know, for instance, are surprised to hear that, you know, our median age of a co-living resident is 29, which seems much older than seems people would It's much imagine. older because a lot right. of people, when they first hear about it, misunderstand it as an extension of student housing, when mm. in reality, it's an acceleration of someone's ability to get into a nice building in an urban center. So we started with this idea of let's create a product from the ground up for people who live with roommates. So keeping the good parts of living with roommates, the social environment and the affordability, but getting rid of as many of the annoyances as we can control through smart design, through thoughtful operations, things like providing shared kitchen and bathroom supplies. Like Mm. people joke about we buy them the toilet paper. Well, we do- not because they're incapable <laughs> of buying the toilet paper on their own, but because that's one of the things that roommates fight about. They fight about who's going to be the schmuck that goes out and buys the toilet paper this week. So if we can remove that little thing, it's trivial for us to do that. Right. But it's one big area of conflict that now doesn't exist in the home. Same with cleaning. Same with making it really easy for them to split the bills, split utilities, split rent. So there's a whole swath of things we provide that actually go into the design of the units themselves. Often in New York and San Francisco and expensive cities, the way units get created for roommates is someone will take a two-bedroom unit, they'll throw up a pressurized wall in the living room and create a three-bedroom apartment, which is affordable for each person living there. But now you don't have a living room. You don't have anywhere to go other than your room, so you stay in your room all day. Right. So if we can design actually larger units that have really nice kitchens and living areas, uh, that's a much better experience than the way it's historically been done. How did you think about
0: what those shared spaces needed to look like and feel like, and 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 what were some of the decisions that you made around outfitting those spaces? Because you you've got really beautiful designs in in the, in the spaces that you that you seem to be building today. Tell me some of the thought that went into the design decisions there.
1: So the original thesis was that these spaces need to exist. And that was really where we ended it. And beyond that, it was let's try a bunch of configurations, both in the programming of the spaces, as well as the placement of Mm. the shared spaces, how much of them should be in unit for those that are Outside of the unit in the building, where should they go on the egress path? And we learned a lot. I mean, today we have almost 50 buildings under management, and every single one of them is somewhat different in its own way. They have different unit configurations. They have different amenity space layouts. They have different shared spaces. The most important thing is that there really is somewhere that is comfortable and multi-purpose for someone to go and leave their room. Because if you have a design where someone is locked up in their room all day and there's nowhere they can go, that is a really compromised experience. So if you're cutting off the living room and you don't have any, say, on-floor amenity space, that gets really challenging from a customer experience standpoint. And that not only seems intuitive, that very much bears out when you look at renewal rates, for instance. Right, right.
0: And and what have you found with renewal rates in the in the short term? I know we've only been doing it for a few years. Yeah, so
1: long term stay is extremely important for us. We really wanted to prioritize community and pro- prioritize creating a friendly place for people to live. We think that's really important for creating a good shared environment, and that's really tough to do if it's a transient environment when people are coming or going.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the first lessons we learned when we opened our first home in Brooklyn. All of our leases were month to month. And we did that because we had this tech mentality of housing. We were like, oh, you spin it up when you need it. You spin it down when you don't. Um, the problem is that was directly in conflict with our goal to create a community. It felt like a hotel. So within a month, we threw that out the window. We said all new members coming in have to sign you know, a 3, 6, or 12-month lease, and we're going to shift pricing to heavily incentivize their 12-month leases. And you know what? Within a couple of months, we transitioned the entire model where a vast majority of all members were now on 12-month leases. And they started to get to know each other. They started to have events. And that was really, that's when it really started clicking. Then it became about how do you use design to get them to not just sign that 12-month lease, but renew at a really high rate and stay there for years. Yeah, those seem like t- such tough spaces to stay in for a long period of time. Don't you we think? need to design them well. So, so it's so a lot of the micro unit product that that, that we operate. You know, there are shared spaces on the floors. Right. So even okay. if you have a smaller unit, there's somewhere you can go on the floor to just get out of your own little room. Right. I and mean, those subtle things can be a fairly small allocation of space, but have a pretty Big impact on the customers' experience in that in that space. So, how did
0: the trend? I, I guess is is what it's quickly becoming this co living trend. How, how did that first get on your radar? What what first started to inform you about that going
1: on, and, and what seemed interesting and, and appealing to you about getting into it? Well, it's funny because we started doing this really before it was called co living, right? Uh, you know, I think we called it shared housing at the beginning, or or simply just. Roommates. Right. You're designing a product for roommates. That's yes. really what it is. Yes. And if you look at the demographic trends, mm-hmm. if you look at the affordability crisis in major cities, in our view, it's obvious that you need a multi pronged approach to address the challenges that are facing cities today. And a big source of the pain is coming from single people who are moving to a city. In New York, for instance, if you look at demographics. Mm. And household types, a third of all households are a single person living alone. On top of that, another 23% are unrelated adults sharing a unit, so roommates. So a majority of all households in the five boroughs of New York City are either a single person living alone or roommates. Traditional nuclear families, only 18%. Mm. So you look at where household formation is going. You look at where demographics are going, and it's inevitable that we need better products to serve this need. Right. For us, it's really rooted in affordability, it is really rooted in convenience. So, one of
0: the things that you have have done a, a good job of sort of educating people a, a about around your space is part of what's been driving this whole challenge with affordable housing and and we should clarify for people the difference between what we call
1: affordable housing and sort of capital a affordable housing right yeah so so we've always from the beginning and it's in a really important distinction we've called common little a affordable right it's market rate but it's offered at a price point that is attainable to a wide number of workers. So someone making 45,000 a year can afford to live in a room in a common building without being rent burdened. We're increasingly getting into big A affordable as well. So projects that are explicitly done in partnership with cities. And that's a fairly new thing for us, but it's something we're really excited about. Uh, So our first one was in New Orleans. Uh, We partnered with a developer called Wisnia and the City of New Orleans Industrial Development Board um, to build approximately 220 co-living suites that are affordable to someone making around $32,000 a year, which is accessible to a wide swath Mm. of New Orleans service worker population. I mean, the city was very worried about people who work in hotels, work in casinos, work in the restaurant industry getting priced out of a city where you know, new studios coming to market are costing you know, $1,600, 1800 a month. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear more about the Urban Electric Company.
0: The Urban Electric Company has remained passionately committed to producing bench-made luxury lighting for an international client base of high-profile designers, architects, and visionaries for nearly two decades. In addition to the vast collection of lights currently available at urbanelectric.com, from skinny sconces to statement pendants to outdoor lanterns and every category in between, a steady stream of new designs ensures a continuous flow of fresh creativity throughout the year. Inspired by art, fashion, history, architecture, and pop culture, each made-to-order light delivers on the signature blend of service that sets Urban Electric apart. Uncompromising quality, unparalleled originality and versatility, and endless options for individual customization. Explore their latest pieces, including six new fixtures designed in collaboration with the LA design duo Nikki Kehoe, at urbanelectric.com/new. And now, back to the show. Uh, you were you were talking earlier about education, and and obviously we have a we have a student loan crisis here in, in our country today, right? So many kids come out of school and they have this heavy debt burden. And at the same time, the cost of housing has just gone up dramatically. So they get sort of the double whammy. They come out mm-hmm. of school, they, they've got to get a job right? that's going to make it possible f- for them to repay their student loan at, at some rate or some level. And then housing is just taking a bigger and bigger share of, of what w- was
1: once their discretionary income, right? Yeah, we're, we're, we're facing a real crisis in cities today. Yeah. And a larger and larger piece of the economic value that's being created by cities is just getting sucked up into housing costs, particularly in coastal cities like New York and San Francisco. So if you look at where the number of people who live with roommates is growing, it's not among 22 to 25-year-olds. The percent of 22 to 25-year-olds who live with roommates has actually been pretty steady over the last 20 years. That's not to say that that demographic hasn't experienced change. Mm. The percent of them living alone has plummeted. The percent of them living with their parents has skyrocketed, whereas the, the intermediate phase of living with roommates uh, has stayed pretty steady. If you look at the next demographic cohort, 26 to 35, that is where the growth has been in people living with roommates. So 22 to 25, you're living with mom and dad, 26 to 35, you're living with roommates. Only into your 30s, in many cases into your mid-30s, do you move out and get an apartment on your own, get a house on your own. So that's a really big and a demographic trend that I think a lot of people misunderstand. The, The second data point that I'll name is in changes in household size. So average household size, the number of people per household, has been decreasing across the world for centuries. It's one of the few demographic trends that spans income levels, it spans generations, it spans racial and ethnic lines. As countries get wealthier, average household size decreases until- 2016. In 2016. (laughs) It all changes in 2016. Household size ticked back up in the United States. And the reason is that young people are not forming their own households anymore. They're living with their parents and they're living with roommates. So this macro demographic trend that has spanned centuries, household size has been going down since we started measuring it in 1792. Now suddenly ticked back up. For the first time ever. I think that's a remarkable trend. Yes. And the, and the forces at work are, are what exactly? Well, they're exactly what you were talking about. They're, you know, wages have not risen in line with costs. Yeah. Costs of education, costs of housing, costs of medical care, what have you. There's just, you know, we have a generation of Americans that are poorer than their parents. For the first time in history. So recently we were talking with a,
0: a futurist on this on this very subject, right? This fellow Piers Fox, who who writes lots of lots of white papers about sort of the future of how we're all going to be living. And I teased him a little bit that some of it sounded very, very frightening to, to me, this parasitic living where we might be sort of attaching ourselves to already existing structures and perhaps living under bridges or on, on the sides of buildings. Um, but he but he did also talk about this co-living as we've just described perhaps something that some people are being pushed to because they they don't have a, a choice it's the only way to sort of find affordable housing and that seems to be where you are stepping in right and and sort of raising the the bar of, of of what people should think of when they think of co co-living spaces and in your case sort of how nice they can can be and the services I guess and amenities that can be provided some people are coming to it. Through, through their own choice. They want to be around more community. And you mentioned earlier that community was sort of a pillar
1: for you of how you thought about the company. Tell me about that. It is. I mean, I, I think it's somewhat a false dichotomy to present it as, are they being forced to do it or do they have a choice to do it? Okay. Obviously, everyone who joins Common or any co-living community has other options. They could you know, move in with other roommates. Hmm. They could- Move into an apartment that's further away from their jobs. They are still choosing to come into a co-living community, but that's you. You don't want to erase the fact that they're still feeling pain, and there's still a shortage of affordable and attainable housing in major U.S. cities. Both those two th- those two things can both be true at the same time, and there are some people who come into co-living enthusiastically saying, hey, I want to be a part of this community. I'm really excited about this. There are some people who come in and say, hey, I'm landing in the city. I need a place to live. I know Common is going to be reliable. I know what I'm going to get. And it makes sense for my budget. And both those are fine. Well, and you you talked a little
0: bit earlier about what you learned about sort of eliminating some of the pain points around having a a roommate. I mean, what does your research suggest are the most important amenities that people want
1: today? Yeah. So the most important amenities from a co-living standpoint are actually what we call operational amenities. So it's less about having one certain type of space or another, and more about addressing the big flashpoints for conflict. So cleaning is obviously a Mm. big one. We clean all all the shared spaces every week because otherwise it can get really challenging. You know, you have dirty dishes piling up. One of your roommates might not be clean. That's the number one area of conflict. And you've actually got people coming in and sort of doing the dishes and doing, cleaning up whatever needs to be done. Basically. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, obviously it's, you know, we still ask people to be good names <laughs> You'd uh, like for them to know, do the dishes on their can't. own. Yeah, you, can, you can't totally, but it, it's really there for when You know, to give people comfort that, like, this is not going to turn into a pigsty. Right. And it also gives our real estate partners comfort that, you know, we have someone going into every suite, keeping it clean and well-maintained every week. And that's been a big value proposition for us. And it's it's a big reason why people choose a co-living environment like Common versus just finding roommates on Craigslist. Right has
0: that become an, an easier sell the go, going after the real estate developers you mentioned so has as you've started to build this brand around common do do people recognize it more in the, in the real estate development industry and are you are you having easier conversations i would imagine in the beginning it might have been challenging for you
1: yeah well we've we've been the beneficiary of a few trends i mean one is that co-living in itself has come into its own and and more people are recognizing that you know this is not some fad, but this is actually, you know, taking a much broader trend and building a product around it. The other is that class A luxury rents as a whole have really started to struggle. Mm. The upper end of the market has gotten very oversupplied, and many real estate owners and developers are looking at this and saying, you know, do I really want to bring more luxury units to market? Does the world really need? more $4,000 a month, one bedrooms. And, and the answer there is no. No, <laughs> it's, it's, we're starting to see people realize that. right. And as they look for alternative products and ways that they can differentiate from all the other supply coming onto the market, they look at co-living and they look at it as, as a way that they can tap into an audience that they've never served before which is exciting. So, you know, we we work with a lot of developers that want to do something different, that that think innovatively. Really the size of co-living is going to come down not to demographics and to urbanization. It's really going to come down to, can we get this product right? And I feel that we have, such that it becomes one of the standard options that anyone living, moving to a city is like, I'm going to see what apartments are available. I'm going to see what pricing is. I'm going to look on Craigslist. I'm going to look at co-living. I'll look at common. And it's going to be as simple as that. It's going day, to be as simple right? as that. And to be clear, like co-living is, is I think it's it's a big product for us. It's going to be our focus for quite a while. But as we build this company, we see opportunities to do things that go beyond co-living as well. I mean, last year we announced Kin, which is our exactly. product for- families with young children living in cities that have a uniquely tough time of it. Distinguish Kin for me so that I understand
0: a little bit better about what, what that has become.
1: Yeah. So, so Kin is uh, our partnership with Tishman Spire that we announced last year, which is really topic, tapping into, I would say, the ethos and lessons of co-living. But I don't look at it as a co-living product. Kin units are private two and three bedroom apartments that are designed for families with young children, so you know they come baby proof. There's stroller parking in the building. There's date night drop off. Um, <laughs> so you know you drop your drop your kids off and you know share a babysitter. Uh, we're going to be facilitating nanny share. Many of our buildings will actually have daycare in the building. So there's a whole set of design features that. Are really going toward how do you design a housing product that makes experience of raising kids in a city better? Is you look at the challenge a lot of families are facing. They have lived in cities for a while. They, they, they like the walkability, they like the environment, their friends are in the city, but they're just facing natural constraints of space and cost and childcare living in a city. And they don't want to be isolated and move out to the suburbs. And so really, challenge, it's, it's a big challenge for a lot of families. It was a great piece Derek Thompson wrote in The Atlantic a few months ago called The Childless City. I mean, it's really talking about this exact problem that cities are losing their children. And you've seen a few cities actually, like, like Vancouver, for instance, take a more activist approach and saying like, no, we're going to mandate that developers build family size units. We're going to build parks and playgrounds that work well for families with young children. And they've been a- actually able to reverse that trend and attract families back into the city. So we're really excited about Kin and its potential yeah. to address a different segment of the market, but a really important one nonetheless. Yeah. So getting back to this sort of design
0: issue, and I'm, and I'm thinking about it. So, so let's assume that you're an enormous success and that co-living spaces pop up all over the place. Are you then going to start sort of designing all of your own furniture to outfit these operations, or do you become sort of a giant customer for some of these companies that can sort of build what I assume must be a fairly high quality level that you that you
1: want for these for these shared spaces, right? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I would say we're kind of already there. Even though our, our existing footprint is relatively small today, we have about 2,000 units under management, we have about 15,000 under development hmm. in 22 cities in several countries. So when you think about the parts of our business that track to the pipeline, you know our single largest team are architects and designers that are just thinking about how do we apply the lessons from what we know today and the buildings we're already operating to all these new projects that are getting entitled, getting financed, and getting built in the pipeline? And then how do we think about scaling things like FF&E procurement and thinking about furniture that can be designed with these spaces in mind? So we're really already getting there. 3% by our measures of all new build property management contracts in the US last year were signed with common. So we're we're already from a pipeline standpoint starting to get there.
0: Okay. And so does that mean you've started to build out teams that are designing the furniture that you that you want? Absolutely. And, and you're and you're manufacturing. So you're you're doing your own manufacturing or how are you We're getting into that. We're okay.
1: still mostly procuring through through third parties. It's still easier to get that pricing, given what's happening with uh, you know, supply chains in China right (laughs) now. Um, I'm kind of, uh, kind of happy that that's most of still of what we're doing still. Right. Okay. Um, but that's an area where we're actively very focused.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it would seem, it would seem inevitable that, that you would just start making your own product. Right. And, and, and that would seem part of your branding as, as well. The, the team that's currently designing the, the spaces tell me a little bit about them and, and who's who's sort of your head of design and, and what are they charged with?
1: Yeah. So our 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 creative director is is Jen Chang mm. and uh, Sophie Wilkinson is the head of our kind of what we call our space team, which is really the 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 studio part that runs all of the design of, of new spaces. And really they're you know they're a big part of the feedback loop, uh, which is gathering the data from what's out there today, you know, from the spaces we run. You know, what pricing are we able to achieve? What gets well-reviewed by our customers? What doesn't? What generates a lot of churn and renewal? And then how do we incorporate that into new projects that we're doing today? Where in many cases, we're we're doing the actual, not just amenity programming and FF&E, we're also doing the interior architecture. We're doing the FF&E procurement. Um, So we do have a set of of scope that we do for all of our pipeline projects. And that team is really charged with, you know, let's make sure we're learning the lessons from the pipeline and the things that we have open today. And then incorporating those lessons into all of our designs going forward, which is one of the powerful things that we can do as both a manager and a designer.
0: Yeah. And and are you learning anything? I I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of sort of our our audience and what they can learn in terms of a a design perspective or, or even a product perspective that you're sort of getting a lot of requests for. I mean, I wonder what you're what you're learning and how it might sort of inform the manufacturing side and the and the design
1: side. Yeah, I mean, you know, one one learning is I mean, people always ask us, you know, how we adapt to given cities and it's incredibly important that every common doesn't look and feel the same, mm. but we're able to operate to the same standard. And that's a really <laughs> tough line to hoe. And, and, <laughs> You know, we don't want to be the Four Seasons where you show up to the Four Seasons in Bangkok and it looks right. the same as the Four Seasons in uh, Chicago or the Four Seasons in Rio. Yeah. We want to be authentic to the area. You want to feel like where you are. We're in, but yeah. at the same time, someone says, hey, I'm moving to Chicago. I want to move into the common. We want them to have some expectation that we can fulfill and we can meet of what a common is. So we really think about it in concentric circles of at the room level, it's pretty much identical. All the rooms are about the same size. There's the same bed, the same nightstand, the same closet with the same stuff in it, to the suite, which might vary a little bit. It varies based on you know building code and zoning code in, in, in every city we're in. It can vary quite a bit based on that. To the amenity spaces, which are gonna vary wildly based on what city they're in. Mm-hmm. So obvious reasons like in LA, you can have a lot of exterior corridors, outdoor spaces. In Chicago, not so much. But you really want it to be authentic and, and rooted in the cities it's in that these buildings are in. And that's that's one of the biggest challenges that we have to overcome is that predictability, that reliability balanced with localness.
0: Right. And and when I show up at Common and my let's say I've got some of my own stuff. Am I bringing it with me? Am I allowed to bring it with me? Am I
1: so for the co-living units? You know, you can bring things with you, but the units are already furnished, so you right. already have a a bed there. A nice can I stand swap out with my
0: bed if I like my bed or no?
1: Generally not. No. <laughs> um, okay. But here's the thing: is and and that this was a worry we had early on is that we'd have a bunch of people wanting to bring their own beds and bring their own like if you you know you can bring a desk that's fine. Right. Most people don't own any furniture that are moving into common. The vast majority like greater than 90% don't own really? anything. Really? Other than a suitcase with their stuff. Um and this was something that came out in our research too. We toured about 40 other kind of mostly ad hoc, some formal co-living spaces when we were researching starting common. Because in the initial conception, we didn't furnish the bedrooms because we assumed people would have bedroom furniture. That turned out to be not the case. People did not own bedroom furniture. Because when we toured all these other co-living spaces, we would see in many cases that the tenants wouldn't even buy bedroom furniture. They would literally just pile Sheets oh, on don't, the don't floor.
0: tell. Me. Don't tell me this.
1: And I know there's probably not a story I should be sharing, but it, we upsetting. saw this again and again and again. Yes. And we're like, this is not how we want anyone no. living in our product to live. No. And if we don't buy them a bed, they're gonna sleep on the on the floor. floor. Oh, for heaven's sakes. And okay. so we we supply beds. And are there is there
0: much in the way of community guidelines that you provide in in common? Are people allowed to date one another inside the community? <laughs> sure,
1: uh, I think we've had we've had we've had some members actually get married. Is that right? Uh, yes. Another reason to move into this space is you might meet your yeah, future. We, we don't we don't we don't we don't market that, <laughs> but if it happens, great. Look, I mean, these are adults, right? Our job this is not a dorm. We're not the RA. Our job is not to baby them or set rules like yeah. this is this is their their home we're we're their property manager so we try to really not be too overzealous or too parental about it like if people escalate issues to us we try to coach them through those issues but it's usually hey if you don't like the people you're living with you can transfer right you're adults yeah and so we really we treat our members like adults and that i think is the right approach and I assume
0: that you foresee this continued massive influx of people coming into New York and needing this, this housing. That's part of what's driving this whole thing,
1: yes? Yeah. I mean, cities where is, are where economic opportunity is, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. Have you had to so we, we were talking in the very
0: beginning about sort of bringing on financing and and having to talk to the VCS about this. Is the venture capital community very excited about this space? Have you reached out for a lot of capital?
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we, we haven't raised around in a while. Um, we've we haven't needed to. And but it's a space that has that that does have a lot of investor interest, but not necessarily a lot of investor sophistication and familiarity. Because you you talk to an average VC and they're like, "Oh, real estate's great. It's huge. It's big. Real estate's really big." Yes, yeah, yes, it's and massive. And, 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 in, and in some cases, like the, the the familiarity begins and ends there. Yeah, I think some of the more sophisticated ones, you know, we are starting to dive into the business models, particularly you know, post WeWork and are scared by some of what they find. I mean, there's a lot of master lease arbitrage businesses in real estate tech. And I think we're fortunate in that that's not the bulk of our business. You know, we're a management company. So we're, we're a partner and, and basically a, a uh, provider to owners and developers who want to want to run this kind of product, which which gives us, I think, a lot more appeal in the capital markets. But you know, we haven't gone out and raised for, for, for a while. So we'll had see. To. We haven't had to. No, yeah. Uh, we're we're fortunate that we're you know we're well capitalized. We've 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 got good bankers and or uh, good backers and and you know we don't burn that much money. Right. Um, we have creditworthy tenants on twelve month leases, paying fairly affordable rates. That's a really creditworthy asset to underwrite and provide great debt terms on. Right, and you're taking full responsibility for that. So you're running the credit reports on all yeah. of your tenants, and you're right.
0: You're that's all your responsibility.
1: You know? Yeah, totally. We're a property manager, yeah. so so we do everything a normal property manager right. would do, from you know the credit checks on the tenants, the leasing, the marketing. You know, we fix the toilets when they break. That's our job. Yeah. We also have this whole design scope up front about you know how do we design something new and innovative, and and we have a brand. So it, it's similar to property management in some ways. It's similar to hospitality in some ways, but also different than either of those things. And and do you like the
0: property management business?
1: Have you have, are you enjoying
0: this? I mean, because a lot of people find it very challenging to be a property manager.
1: I do. I mean, we're we're lucky that we have great people on our team. I mean, we've been able to hire some incredible talent out of you know places like Star and related. Right, and that has really I think established that that core. Because, you know, we're not coming into this space from tech, you know, from a Silicon Valley saying, hey, we know how to do this better. You know, we wanted to hire experience and talent who's done this on the ground, who knows what it means to run a building, but then pair that with people who understand technology and can build better technology than what the existing operators are doing today.
0: Help me understand better how the technology is, is is transforming this this whole space
1: because that seems central to to what you're doing it really is, and a lot of it is about how do you use technology to create better outcomes for the customer but at the same time run things more efficiently on site which actually you can often do those two things at the same time I'll give you a great example so when a lead when somebody applies to live at common that lead goes to a central office where you know someone who has a regional focus will answer it and say get on get on the phone quickly with that lead we can walk them through virtual tours of all of our spaces about 30% of our tenants actually sign a lease through a virtual tour alone which is super convenient for them yeah because many of them aren't in the city that they're moving to, and they're like, oh, my God, I have to show up. I'm going to rent an Airbnb. I'm going to have to take a bunch of tours. It's a, it's a nightmare. It's an incredibly stressful process. So for us, we can say, hey, do a virtual walkthrough. If you don't like it, you can transfer. You can sign your lease electronically. Everything happens digitally. It's a super easy 15-minute process. And it's both better for the customer. It's also better for us and for our owners because they have to have fewer leasing agents on site. They can right. do it all remotely, yeah. and so it changes the economics of the management. So that's an example of mm-hmm. how we're using technology. Yeah, I, th- I think the challenge and the opportunity for us is we have we have so many diverse disciplines in our team. We have software engineers. We have, I mean, we have both types of architects. We have uh, you know building architects, and we have software <laughs> architects. Exactly. We have we have you know salespeople and leasing agents. We have. You know lawyers, we have accountants. Oh, we're about two hundred. Okay, about a third of whom are on site, and okay. uh, about two thirds in HQ. Uh, because we still do have to have leasing agents, and we sure. still do have to have maintenance techs And you know, you can't fix a toilet remotely. Right. Um, so it's still that it still is rooted in in, yeah. in in property management. And that diversity of of team members. Is a challenge in some respects, but it's also a huge opportunity to one, build something really cool and unique where you can have a architect sitting down with a, you know, maintenance technician and then sitting down with a software engineer and incorporating those learnings into design. It also is wonderful for our employees that they get to experience and touch so many different parts of the, you know, value creation here in residential. I would think, I would think, okay, last
0: question, Brad. All right. What are you most excited about? What, what do you see happening that perhaps we can't even imagine right now that's going to happen in this space because of sort of what you're doing and what's happening in general in this space?
1: I'm really excited by the prospect of more people, ourselves but others, building residential products that tackle very specific needs. I'm really excited about some of the things happening in senior housing right now. Really excited about intergenerational housing. There's a lot of people- We haven't even talked about the seniors. You're going to be helping them too? Well, not on the roadmap for (laughs) Common right now. We do have some seniors that live in Common. Okay. I think there's going to be a lot of really exciting things in the purpose-built residential space. I think this idea that you can be a developer and just churn out the same luxury product, stamp it out in gentrifying neighborhoods i think that's going away i think you need to be Go thoughtful ahead. about who your audience is i think you need to you need you will need to be thoughtful about how you use technology and you'll need to be thoughtful about how you brand and you market so that is the macro change that's happening is it's just it's leveling up across the board and the way it's always been done isn't good enough anymore Good. I like that. Okay.
0: That's a positive message. And I'm much less frightened of co-living than I was just a week ago. You've helped me feel so much better about it. So, <laughs> Great to hear. So thank you for that. My guest has been Brad Hargreaves, the founder of Common. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear about Build Lane. BuildLane's online platform, developed specifically for interior designers, is making it easy to design and source custom furniture with U.S. manufacturers. Upload your design to your designer dashboard and watch live as your furniture moves through production. Gone are the days of 50 phone calls and emails, tracking down project statuses. BuildLane gives you full transparency at a glance, simply by logging in. Quality is designer-grade, Pricing is competitive. Lead times are six to eight weeks. Shop drawings are free. Interior designers across the country have been sourcing custom furniture with ease using Buildlane since 2017. Find out more by creating your free designer account at buildlane.com boh and receive $250 off your first order. That's buildlane.com slash boh. And now, back to the show. The conversation with Brad you just heard was taped way back at the beginning of March, before the coronavirus turned life upside down here in the States. I wanted to check in with him again to hear how COVID might have changed things for Common and the outlook for co-living in general. So Brad, you and I were together March 2nd. You were actually the last person that I interviewed in person. We had no idea what was about to come our
1: way we did how, not
0: <laughs> how, how how we all seem so young and naive in those days
1: back in the how, rest of the restaurant days i call them
0: <laughs> yes exactly where we could just sit down at a table together what what happened in in your world and and when did when did covid start to become a, a major force in in your world and and something that you had to to manage
1: well, it all uh, it all seemed to happen within a few days, uh, really, between I would say March tenth and March thirteenth, uh, where we realized this was going to be a major thing in New York. And we I think we were fortunate in that we 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 moved quickly on it. Uh, and we also had some of the pieces in place to navigate it. So to give you an example, we uh conducted all a lot of our tours in homes through 3D tours, through virtual tours uh even before COVID. So it was pretty straightforward for us to flip a switch and say, "Hey, you know, our members don't want leasing agents going into their suites to tour a vacant room. We're not doing that anymore. We're moving entirely to virtual tours." And we really haven't looked back for that. And it's it's unclear when we're even going to go back to any kind of in-person tours because, frankly, we're, we're, we're doing well uh, with 100% virtual. So, you know, we made that change. We increased cleaning. We shut down some but not all amenity spaces. I can talk about that more. Okay. Uh, and we also closed our own office, and we all went virtual. But you know we're fortunate, as I said, that we were were set up with a lot of the technology and, and, and virtual tooling to allow us to continue doing business through this period. But it is, has been a been a wild ride and a, and a challenge. Unlike any other I've I've faced as an entrepreneur and an executive,
0: sure, and and unlike anything any of us have ever experienced, we those of us that might have gone through nine eleven or those of us that went through the previous financial crisis, there, there might be some elements, some some common threads, but but this is uh, this is absolutely unlike anything we've had to experience, and it's changed people's thinking, at least in the short term, about many things. In terms of the spaces that you have in New York City, what what had to what had to change there in the short term to, to adjust to what was happening?
1: Well the two main operational changes, one of which I mentioned was increasing cleaning. Uh, the other was increasing the provisioning of shared goods, so we supply all of the toilet paper, paper towels, cleaning supplies, hand soap, things like that for all of our suites and we do that so roommates don't need to fight about who's going to go out and buy those shared goods right. uh, and and you know that you know which which was part of the promise we make to members, you know turned from a you know have kind of small nice thing we do into a non trivial operational challenge because not only are all those things harder to find toilet paper in particular but we you know we now have to buy way more of it because people went from being in our spaces from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. the next day to being in our homes 24 hours a day, doing everything in our homes, and so they consume a lot more of these goods. So we've had to go through some crazy uh, <laughs> hoops to not just you know continue supplying those goods, but also get PPE for all of our essential workers. You know, our maintenance techs, our porters, people who are going, our cleaners, people who are going into people's homes. Uh, making sure they're adequately supplied with with masks, with gloves, with 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 proper protective equipment. Which you know, at one point we had to make an order of PPE from Australia. We had some you know friend of a friend who had uh, access to some, so it has been really uh, you know MacGyverish in our ability <laughs> to get uh, you know PPE and supplies to everyone who needs them in our homes.
0: So for the the existing tenants that you had. What went on for them in the, in the first sort of 60 days that, that, that we were all being forced to, as you were saying earlier, be in our homes literally 24 hours a, a day? What, 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 what happened for, for them? I, I know that a lot of people lost jobs during this time. Uh, was that a challenge for your operation?
1: Uh, what yeah. were the things that happened? You know, I, I I can't speak to every tenant's experience. It's obviously you know as 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 varied as as they get. You know, we have about twenty seven hundred members today who who live in live in common homes. Um, so it really does run the gamut, and the experience that someone has in Seattle, uh, where where they started getting hit and implemented a lockdown very early in March, is going to be different than someone in New York that is still very much living through the lockdown today. Um, I would say uh, we have not seen nearly as many non-payment issues as we anticipated. We rolled out payment plans at the end of March, so just kind of anticipating that some people would have trouble paying. Uh, a, A couple dozen members took us up on those payment plans so it did have an impact, but in general, we've been able to maintain bad debt below 3% for April, May, and June, which is really in line with, uh, with what we would expect to see.
0: And then in terms of, of the number of new people who have expressed interest in the spaces, tell, tell me a little bit about what you're seeing right now. It's
1: It's been interesting. So lead volume, so top of the funnel, has has remained very high and has actually continued trending up. Um, one interesting thing we saw was through the month of March and, and, and really the first half of April, the conversion rate from a paid deposit, so someone puts down uh, money to reserve a room, which applies to the first month's of rent, converting to leases signed. That conversion rate is typically around 90%. So 90% of the people who convert, who put down a paid deposit will convert to a lease. That Mm -hmm. dropped to 45%. It was cut in half in March, which just really indicated a broad kind of dislocation of the economy, of people. Uh, Job offers were rescinded. Internships were canceled. Classes were canceled. Um, Very little of it had anything to do with co-living. It all had to do with this, just, this economic dislocation of people who thought they were doing X suddenly weren't doing that anymore. But uh, we did see it return pretty rapidly in the last two weeks of April.
0: Interesting. So, so things sort of settle down after a time and then people resume their, their plans to, to get to the city for one reason or another.
1: Particularly outside of New York, we still okay. have not seen a full recovery within New York, and and lots of reasons
0: that we can think uh, around that, right? I mean,
1: yes, I, uh, there's there's obviously been a been been a lot happening in New York uh, <laughs> uh, in, in 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 the past month. Um, you know, I think the biggest factor, though, by far, is is simply the the subway, um, and. You know the lack of leadership in creating all alternate ways of getting people to uh, to their jobs. Um, If you look at other cities, major European cities, uh, for instance, even major other North American cities, uh, they've come out and said, "Hey, we're creating you know sixty, hundred miles of bike lanes uh, to get people." to their jobs. Uh, because, you know, we, we can't, we, we know people aren't going to be comfortable taking the subway. Um, you know, I think the the attitude in New York so far has been, you know, let them take cars, which is an absurd suggestion <laughs> in a city where the vast, vast majority of people don't own cars. And if they did, right. it would they would all sit in traffic all day long. So uh, I, I feel like there's been a real you know, not only kind of very cautious reopening in New York, but also a total lack of vision on how do we how do we get the city uh, moving again prior to a vaccine.
0: It, it's it's fa- it's fascinating to see the city right now, and I I ran in there this weekend. It's a, it's a wonderful time to be a driver in New York because traffic. Uh, moves right along to the extent that there even is any traffic. Uh, but at the same time, you, you, you see, to your point, how, how little has returned to normal in, in New York. The, the, the number of people that you see, the, the cars, uh, sadly, right now, as we know in this moment, so many retail stores are, are boarded up, and uh, it, it's a, the city is a shell of its former self and that has to have a psychological impact on people when they think about getting back there.
1: Absolutely. And 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 I believe that people will return. You know, most of the stories I've heard of people who come out and say, "Hey, I'm leaving the city. I'm never coming back." were really people who had one foot out the door to, door to begin with. Uh, you know, the the people I speak to who who are New Yorkers? Who love the city? Uh, they're, you know, they're gonna be, they're gonna come back in some form. It might not be to the five boroughs itself. It might be, you know, right outside. But it's, you know, th- they're gonna come back to the city. So I do believe that. It's just, you know, what is that? What does that timeline look like? And the longer it drags on, uh, you know, the 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 more. Pain that you're going to find small businesses in, uh, the more pain you're going to find, you know, renters and 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 essential workers in. Uh, it's 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 going to create a real issue. It's going to create a huge budget issue for the city as well. Uh, we're looking at a nine billion dollar shortfall in New York this year, and it's you know it's it's unclear how that gap is made up.
0: When you and I last spoke, as we said back in back in March, which seems a world ago. One of the things that we were talking a great deal about was affordable housing in, in, in both forms of that. And it, it seems as if perhaps now is this incredible opportunity to to, to bring meaningful progress to the, to the housing crisis that we, that we face in, in many large cities and and really bring prices, prices down. Do you, do you see that coming out of this in a meaningful way? I do. I'm a
1: little cautious. <laughs> the hesitancy. I, I, yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a little cautious to say okay. that this is this is a okay. solution. Okay. Uh, first of all, like, you know, driving a large number of people out of the city is possibly the worst way to achieve affordability. Uh that's, you know, it it, it leads to a lot of dislocation. It leads to uh, a lot of losses of not just jobs, but also of tax revenue. So the flip side of like, you know, apartments are going to be rented on average for cheaper than they were pre COVID is that the city has a lot less money to spend on affordable housing. Mm. So there, there are a lot of people right now. I, I, you know, we did a, a, a an interview the other day with David Dishy who runs uh L&M Development Partners they're one of the largest mm-hmm. affordable housing develop uh developers in New York City and there's a lot of concern over uh you know what the budget is going to be that can go toward affordable housing uh in in the five boroughs cuz that that 9 billion dollar shortfall has to be uh you know has to come from somewhere as as much as i think there will be a, a, a big depression in you know, market residential rents. Mm. Uh, that's not necessarily, in the aggregate, going to be a great thing for affordability long term. I am excited about uh, you know some pressure being put on on retail rents. I think there will be uh, a lot of interest in experiential retail, uh, in cool alternative uses of retail space. I I I think this will break some of the logjam on the retail side that we've seen in years as 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 landlords wait for uh a big brand to come in and pay uh pay top dollar for vacant retail space. So um I, I do think the affordability on the retail side could be positive.
0: I'm I'm wondering Brad when you when you think about sort of how your how your own thoughts and, and where your own ideas have gone over these past few months have you in your own head made some some meaningful changes as to some of the direction you want to take or or some of the some of the things that you want to incorporate in your in your spaces going forward. How how has all this
1: impacted your thinking about the business that you're building? When we look at a really high level and, and think about the business we're building, this has really accelerated a change that we were already going through, which is uh, Co-living being a product within a broader management platform. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we have our own management platform. We don't use any off-the-shelf uh, real estate technology. And you know, one of the things that enabled was us to be able to roll out payment plans within a couple of weeks uh, of COVID coming out, which which took a lot of other managers, you know, well into April to uh, to, to, to implement, you know, virtual tours is another example. We were set up to do that. And, you know, those changes, those things that we rolled out, um, they really, you know, they apply to co-living those technologies. They apply to, you know, private apartments, uh, to traditional apartments, just as well as they apply to co-living. So a lot of the growth we're going through right now is about taking over entire portfolios, uh, not just the co-living someone manages, but uh, all the other buildings, because, you know, we can actually provide a better experience for the tenants, something that's more consistent, more responsive, using technology, using our centralized operating model uh, versus what they're getting today. And provide a, a a a better kind of clearer management option for the owner. So a lot of where we're going right now is generalizing the platform and thinking about how do we not just uh be the best co-living operator but be the best residential operator in the country today. Interesting. Okay, so that that sounds like a major opportunity coming out of this. It is. It was it was where we were already going. Um, okay. You know, we've already been taking over micro-apartment portfolios, taking over a mix of uh, you know buildings like Common Baltic in Brooklyn, where which is about a hundred units, and it's a mix of co-living and traditional. Um, so that's a lot more of, of of what we're doing, and we found that a lot of the 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 things that we do for co-living, the you know the events, the community, uh, the technology is. You know, is 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 needed in in traditional management as well. So that's a lot of the growth that we've seen uh, this year, and I think throughout this, as you know, owners are frustrated with their existing managers' performance uh, through COVID.
0: And and I'm sure it's been very challenging for for all for all building management companies to to try and navigate this.
1: It, yeah, is. It, it, it certainly is. I mean, it's a challenge that no manager was, 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 was yeah. expecting. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a lot, of, a lot of management companies as well are really stuck in the 20th century from a technology standpoint. Um, and, you know, that can be very frustrating to both owners and tenants uh, that struggle to everything from pay rent online to, you know, tour an apartment virtually uh, to get a quick response to a maintenance request things like that, you know, that, that we've been doing for co-living have a need outside of it as well.
0: So really, regardless of sort of where co-living goes, there's, there's plenty of other opportunities for you in, in the management space in general, it sounds
1: well, like. to be clear, we're, we're very bullish on co-living and a lot of what we're doing in these, you know, when we're taking over traditional buildings is, you know, converting units as they roll to co-living. Mm. Uh, if, if the layouts work for that, so we're we're we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, just a lot of demand from owners who want to diversify their products, who want to roll out technology, um, and see co-living as a part of that, but perhaps the the ol- not the only uh, value proposition.
0: It's interesting because when you and I spoke earlier. We- some of the some of the strengths that you talked about around co-living was affordability and community right and right and it and it definitely seems as if one of the challenges that many people are facing right now with with being forced to work from home is is missing this lack of community and so having that in a in your co-living space Again, to the extent that you feel comfortable, or how you how you sort of manage that on your on your own, uh, but I, I would imagine that that's been a comfort for many.
1: Right, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's it's this is the toughest for people living in small studio apartments by themselves. Yeah. Living with roommates and having some people to share space with is actually a positive thing as we go through this level of isolation. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Exactly. Oh, I, I, I'm 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 so curious to see where where co living goes, and I'm I'm so curious to see how uh, New York is is going to to reinvent itself, and 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 other cities as well. We talked earlier about San Francisco, another city that was really facing a a, a true housing crisis a, a, in terms of affordability, and and I'm hoping some meaningful change will come there as well.
1: Yeah. I look. The biggest thing that can help New York recover from this is housing affordability. If the value proposition of living in New York is a strong one, people will return and they'll return quickly.
0: And if we can figure out that darn subway system.
1: (laughs) Well, that's (laughs) that's a big part of it.
0: It absolutely is. I mean, you, because everyone's got to figure out how the people are going to get there and, and how they're, they're going to get to work and get home and everything else. We can, we can build great apartment buildings, but unless people can feel comfortable getting around, uh, it, it's going to be very hard to get it back. Very hard. Very hard. Brett, thank you so much for making the time to, to catch us up on how things have been going.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest news, visit us online at businessofhome.com. A quick announcement, we're hosting a series of weekly online courses where designers can learn a new skill or polish an old one. Recent classes include a workshop on getting your work published and inside tips on becoming an influencer. All courses are free of charge for BOH insiders. To learn more, visit businessofhome.com education. That's businessofhome.com Slash education. Finally, if you have thoughts or a story of your own to share, please drop us a line at podcast at This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Marina Felix. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll see you next time.